Appreciate those uh, to you. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much, and Cassie, thank you. <clears throat> we will start a uh, study of Exodus 33, 34, and chapter 40 uh, next Wednesday night. Uh, there is a book available. It's not necessary to have it. It's supplemental. The primary focus will be the studies that I deliver on Wednesday nights. If you'd like the book, please fill out a card Sunday and let us know. Uh, you don't have to sign up to be a part of this, but... Um, we would, uh, it would help us to know, but not entirely necessary. If by chance tonight we go beyond 7 o'clock in choir, you feel like you need to leave then, please um, feel free to do so. And I, and I uh, what's that? Yes, well, indeed, we insist that you do, okay? Uh, and just follow, follow Timothy out, and he will be very pleased. This is great. Yeah. We've got all kinds of names for people. I've been informed, by the way, that uh, our band no longer wants to be known as Tim and the AD Band. We never wanted to be known as that. Hurts my feelings, too. You don't have to say And so um, they want to be known as um, the uh, Beach Band, and uh, is what I was told. And so to, because they hurt my feelings so bad, I'm going to call them the Beach Boys. So... Let me, uh, <laughs> y'all, y'all need to figure that out. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, with this issue, I'm going to do like I do at home. I'm just going to do what I want to do. So Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter one and um, Deuteronomy 22 and Matthew 19. If you, this rowdy crowd can find a Bible and find that in your Bibles, um, I think you'll benefit. Um, Tonight, I want to address the transgender crisis from seven perspectives, and uh, would like to do that. I want to say I'm open to further instruction and am willing to, uh, to learn if it leads us in the way of truth and sympathy and compassion. It helps us to become great commissionaries. I'm very willing to do that. I do want to ask you to be very careful of letting your heart become angry uh, over these issues. Um, and uh, be careful of harsh uh, language when uh, dealing with um, these issues and those that may disagree. It's hard to do this because it involves children. And that's primarily the focal point of my concerns tonight uh, when it comes to transgender issues. We're primarily dealing with children. We'll deal some with adults as well. But I want to ask and answer the question before we get into the text at all, what is transgenderism or gender dysphoria? They're not entirely identical, but I'm going to keep them in the same ballpark tonight for simplicity. One, this is a confusing, a personally confusing problem. Essentially, uh, the problem that we're talking about is when a boy or a girl feels what is called a marked incongruence, uh, internal inconsistency with how they feel about their maleness or femaleness and what they are anatomically. That's really a kind of a sophisticated way of saying when a boy is uncomfortable being a boy would prefer to be a girl or wonders or when a girl feels the other way. Second, it's an extremely rare problem. Uh, less than 1%. If I were to say 1% of boys and girls suffer from this, that would be a real large exaggeration. It's a very small problem. Then it's a non-sexual problem. When we talk about transgenderism and gender dysphoria, we're not talking about sexual behavior per se. 
Now, they tend to pal around together in the LGBT community, but it's not the same thing. Homosexuality and lesbianism is an approach to sex, and it's an identity, but it's an approach to sex. Transgenderism and gender dysphoria is an identity that may not imply sexual uh, behavior. Uh, it's a perception problem. It differs from intersex. The old term that we used to use was hermaphrodite. That's probably not the best term to use these days, I'm told. But uh, for clarity's sake, it will serve us as here. Uh, a hermaphrodite or someone that's intersex is someone who biologically has got male and female parts. Interestingly enough, however, those who suffer from that choose an identity. They choose to be male or they choose to be female. Uh, most of those do. Uh, so it's not that. It's not a biological problem. It is, I believe, a problem in the mind and the emotions that I really think is imposed upon a child. It, 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 that leads us to letter E. It is a mental problem. Now, I was not enabled, able to include it today, but at 5 o'clock, the 5 o'clock hour, I began reading a study from two professors at Johns Hopkins in the Atlantic Monthly magazine who have reiterated this point here that it is not a biological problem. There's no evidence that it has anything to do with biology. It is indeed something that is mental. In 1960s, Johns Hopkins University began to do gender reassignment surgery, sex change operations. By the 70s, they stopped doing those because they found that those that went through had uh, a similar degree of problem as, though, as they did before they went through the surgery, and it did not markedly improve their life, and there was no need to go through such a radical surgery to improve nothing. And so they discontinued gender reassignment uh, surgeries. Uh, in fact, one researcher, Dr. McHugh, who was part of the research I read today at the five o'clock hour said, sex change is biologically impossible. You, I mean, you can go through an anatomical change, but you still have your DNA and chromosomes, which do not change, even with hormone hormone therapy. He said, people who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. Claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. This is also a temporary problem for most. Most children uh, that begin to question whether they're boys or girls are through that and past that and identify themselves with their biological sex after puberty at the rate of 85 to 90%. Now, what about the 10 or 15% who don't? Well, there's a spectrum. Some, it's not that big of a deal. For some, it's a pretty severe crisis and then somewhere in between. Some of those, um, by the, well, actually, Dr. McHugh today in this latest research I read in the 5 o'clock hour said they are nearly all identified with their biological sex by the time they're adults. So it's a temporary problem. It's a stage. And there are some that recommend a wait-and-see approach uh, because kids usually get through it at a rate of at least 85 to 90%. It's a threatening problem. Gender binary thinking, which is basic traditional male-female identity. If, if we're anatomically a male, we're a man. If we're anatomically female, we're women. Okay. That kind of thinking, which assumes there are only two distinct genders, male and female, is becoming a thing of the past. Now, please do not get too optimistic about the Johns Hopkins research. I discovered a long time ago that people are more apt to do what's popular than what is true. 
And much of our culture is not driven by truth, not even the scientific research, unless it suits their purposes. They filter truth. I should have warned you, I was going to be a big bucket of sunshine tonight. <laughs> this is a political problem as well. Since at least the 20s or 30s, when Freud's notions became popular, when John Dewey began to influence education, following World War II, the advent of the pill in the 50s, the sexual revolution in the 60s, there's been an attempt on the part of the political left and the intellectual academic left to overthrow every barrier that we have traditionally observed in culture. And this is one of the remaining ones that is there. So it's not the research that drives this. It's political in many ways. In other words, sexual and identity self-determination, often immature and undeveloped, is the master, not the science. The American College of Pediatricians insist while many adolescents struggling with this will seek out a therapist after self-identifying, many states have been forced by non-scientific political pressure to ban so-called conversion therapy. These bans prevent therapists from exploring not only a young person's sexual attractions and identities, these bans prevent therapists from exploring not only young person's sexual attractions and identity, but also his or her gender identity. Therapists are not allowed to ask an adolescent. Therapists are not allowed to ask why an adolescent believes he or she is transgender. They have to accept that. Matter of fact, gender dysphoria does not mean that you're a boy and you identify as a girl. It means you're a boy who identifies as a girl and you're upset about it. If you're not upset about it, you don't have gender dysphoria. That's a change from the diagnostic tool they used um, a number of years ago. So they're not allowed to ask why you're transgender, uh, may not explore underlying mental health issues, cannot consider the symbolic nature of the gender dysphoria, and may not look at possible confounding issues such as social media or social contagion. Well, then why do we need therapists? Uh, this is a real problem. There are children and some others who actually are struggling with this. I do not believe that it arises from within. Or let me say, it does not originate from within. With children especially, it seems to me it is imposed from without, from several other sources. Parenting, environment, and perhaps other factors as well. The thesis is this, Christians... And all adults should lead those who suspect themselves or to be or identify themselves as transgender, should lead them to Christ and their God-given sexual identity as defined by their chromosomes. In other words, win them to the Lord and help them celebrate who they are as defined by their chromosomes. So that leads us to consider this from seven perspectives. One is the biblical perspective. We have a well-defined, well-established, Christ-approved framework of thinking about all these issues. Whether it's this issue, homosexuality, or whatever it may be. Creation, corruption, Christ, and conclusion. Uh, creation, we're created in the image of God. You cannot escape that. There is no human being that was not created by God. 
Every human, human was created by God. There's the corruption of the fall, which is spread to all men and women, according to Romans 5. Everyone is corrupted by the fall. That's why we'd rather cuss than pray at times. That's why our first instinct is to say, that's why you did not have to teach your children to lie. It came quite naturally. So corruption, we're all corrupt. We need a redeemer or we're hopeless. So there's creation, corruption, Christ. Jesus defined these issues and spoke of these issues or related issues. And I don't think anyone knows more about human beings than Jesus. Finally, there's the conclusion before the judgment bar of God. We should all stand before the judgment bar of Almighty God and we will be evaluated uh, on the basis of our, our behavior. Believers are saved and their rewards will be determined by their behavior. Lost people uh, have no hope when they reach that point. They're consigned to hell, but the degree to which they are judged in hell will depend upon their works. It's all bad. It's worse for some because of their behavior. They knew what to do, but they did not do it, so they've got a greater accountability. And Jesus talked about the greater condemnation to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. So creation, corruption, Christ, conclusion. Now look at your neighbor and the two of you repeat those to each other. Creation, corruption, Christ, conclusion. One more time. Now this is the framework in which we evaluate behavior. And it's not a bad way to evaluate theology, culture, and society because it is how God will evaluate it. And there's no one wiser than him. No one at all. So because of creation, corruption, Christ, and conclusion... I want to make this point. It is entirely impossible to be, in reality, secular. Secularism is an illusion. It's a myth. Now, some excel at an illusion. But the truth is, even if you believe you're secular, you cannot escape the fact that God created you and you're accountable to Him. And He shaped your body with limitations. And you can't escape those. If uh, you're still breathing, or if you're not breathing, you were corrupted by the fall, and you have a propensity for sin and a love for it and self-justification. And then Christ, Jesus Christ, has something to say about our behavior, and he is the ultimate judge. And then there is a judgment day. In Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. No one's going to escape that. And so someone may parade themselves about and strut and swagger, or not, and claim to be secular, but it is impossible to be secular because of at least those four, uh, four facts. Now, of course, people are capable of living in, in an illusionary world, and that is entirely true. But let's look at these four items here. <coughs> and I want to uh, provide this to you so you'll have a framework for evaluating things, but also I want you to be bold, not, not abrasive, not abrasive, but I want you to be firm. And I don't want you to be wimpy. There's no time for wimpiness. No time for silence. We can't do that. Um, it, it's a dishonor to Jesus. It's a dishonor to him to wilt uh, before the heat of the current culture, especially those who are living in illusion. It's not appropriate for his name. He deserves better. So creation in the garden. God created humans with only two genders, male and female. Genesis 1.27 is emphatic. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So therefore, male and female, he created them. God has an image. He has attributes, characteristics. 
He has uh, abilities, and he took some of those and placed them in the man, and he placed some of them in women. And that's why every home needs a mom and daddy. Every child needs a mom and daddy family because some of the elements and attributes of God are deposited in the man and some in the woman. And when they're together, they put on full display before the child the image of God. And so it's far more likely in a loving home that is submitted to Jesus Christ that a child will come to Christ and follow Jesus because they've seen God in mom and in dad. So mom and dad are entirely necessary, and that's why God created men and women to build families. So letter A, gender is a gift, and we're to receive it as such. It's also an obligation. All of our lives are obligated to underscore and support and strengthen this gift of gender. Uh, we do that with, by reflecting who we are, being made in God's image, in marriage and with having children, and human choices that undermine these things are designs of sin and reflect a satanocracy in life, a rule of dark forces. They reflect sin and satanocracy, not wisdom and compassion. Because that is precisely what Satan tempted them to leave in the Garden of Eden. And then in reality, reality is very stubborn. It matters not if a legislature were to dismiss the law of gravity. Gravity will not cooperate. Will not. And no human will ever break the law of gravity. The law of gravity will break the human. Creation and reality are very, very stubborn. So that leads Alistair Roberts to write. For instance, someone who is male to female goes from being a male to a female, transsexual. They have no womb, even with gender reassignment surgery. They have no menstrual cycle, no biological clock. They don't have the formative relationship to their bodies that women have. They are not ordered to pre procreation. So they're not participating in the larger female pattern. In many senses, it's a feminization of the male body, and it remains a male body, and so it's more sad saying, it is more saying this is a cul-de-sac. You cannot get anywhere that way. And Tony, uh, Tony Reich will argue, you could even take a man that has gone through gender reassignment surgery and place within him a womb, and it would be unproductive. Could not produce. Reality and creation are stubborn. They will not budge. God won't let them. The corruption of the fall. It should come as no surprise that we are dealing with this issue if you understand Genesis 3 and Romans 5. The earth has become corrupt without the knowledge of God. Uh, Solomon would say in Proverbs 28, 19, something about the preaching of the word. Now, this verse is often misunderstood as casting a vision for a church or for a business, and it has nothing to do with that. Uh, it has everything to do with the prophetic vision, the prophet's vision, the prophet's voice, the prophet's word. And it says in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no clutching and treasuring of the word of God, the people will lead themselves into a state of death. And that's uh, 
it should come as no surprise. That's precisely what we do. Let me ask you to imagine this. I want you to imagine the worst possible barriers that could be broken. We've already broken the barriers of marriage and already broken the barriers of um, uh, gone through God's barriers about um, sexual activity, uh, heterosexual activity, fornication, adultery, and now homosexuality and lesbianism. We've already broken those barriers. Just imagine the worst things that we could do, the most unimaginable things that could come next. And 30 years will be there, if not sooner. Imagine the worst barriers that could be broken concerning religious liberty. In 10 years, we could be there. It should come as no surprise because of the corruption on the earth and the abandonment of so many people, especially in the centers of power. Maybe not the ordinary person, but in the centers of power. Abandonment of the word of God. And we have a political system and a legal system. It just takes one cranky person to mess everything up for everybody. See? Now, sometimes that's been a great service uh, when it comes to uh, legitimate rights. Uh, but most of the time, it's been a pretty tragic story, especially since World War Two. Well, God anticipated this and prohibited behaviors that confuse gender. Deuteronomy 22, verse number 5, made it very clear. Something that is very public, very obvious. And in verse 5, he said, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's gar garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, some of these laws in the, in the Old Testament were not transferred to our day. Their purpose was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ when the church became missionary. But the ones that are tagged, uh, their violations are tagged with abomination. Nearly all of those made it into the New Testament because they are indicative of moral law. And the moral law of God from Genesis to Deuteronomy was transferred to the whole earth in the New Testament. In fact, uh, 13 chapters in Isaiah and um, eight chapters or so in Jeremiah, several chapters in Ezekiel, and nearly the whole book of Daniel is a declaration of the law of God to the Gentile nations. And they're held up to the standard of the moral law that is found in these laws. And so God makes it very clear there are some behaviors we're not to engage in that confuse gender. Scripture, with considerable intensity, condemns exchanging natural identities and functions for what is unnatural. There's an expectation that's real obvious from creation of how you should behave, and you don't violate that. The third thing is Christ, Lord of all. Jesus affirmed male and female gender identity in Matthew 19, verse 4. In fact, when God came to earth, he clearly identified with one gender, male. When you looked at Jesus, you had no confusion there. And he did not display confusion or dysphoria over it. Matthew chapter 19, verse number 4, it says here, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's what he did. And I don't think we can improve on Jesus. Any attempt to do so is probably naive and inadvertent arrogance. Conclusion of life and judgment. God will judge us to the degree to which we embraced and lived the truth of Scripture. He'll raise bodily the righteous and the unrighteous, according to John 5, 28 and 29. 
Now, when he raises the dead for judgment, will there be any gender confusion there? Will he be confused at all? Well, the resurrection is an image of what we should be living now. And then he will judge us on the sincerity of our faith as to whether or not our faith led us to the point where we live pure and holy lives according to the truth. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14, uh, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, this is a biblical framework and there's no need to be embarrassed about it. In fact, you ought to be very strong on it. And I think if you're not ascetic or easily upset, I think many of your non-Christian friends would really like to have a discussion about this. They don't get us and they don't understand why it is we take this perspective. But I've shared this fourfold framework, creation, corruption, Christ, conclusion with uh, non-Christian friends, and it makes sense. And for them, because most of them have something of a religious memory and background, it puts together an awful lot of what they already know or have heard. Second, there's the medical perspective. The American College of Pediatricians in their report on gender dysphoria insist no sexologist could actually change a person's genes through hormones and surgery. Sex change is objectively impossible. You can change someone anatomically, but they still have the same DNA and the same chromosomes. That same college of pediatricians notes that there, are, uh, there is a little research, it's not large, but very little research that does show there is some brain difference in some of those who deal with gender confusion. Not all of them, but in some of them. That leads us to two questions. First, so what? So what? So what if there is some brain difference? Why is it that we would determine our gender solely on the basis of the brain? Is there not a chromosomal structure? Is there not DNA? Is there not a central nervous system? Is there not a body? Is there not an entire person below the head and the brain where it resides that also defines, is there not an anatomy as well? But the second question I have is this. How do you know that the brain differences in a few gender-confused persons, not all gender-confused persons, mind you, but how do you know that the brain differences in a few gender-confused persons are the cause or the effect? How do you know that transgender confusion and behavior didn't cause the brain changes? Why do you assume the brain changes cause the transgender confusion? Let's say you do an autopsy on a smoker who smokes cigarettes their whole life. And you get in there and you open up the lungs and you find lungs full of what? Tar. Okay? Well, you look at that and to go with what some of these folks are thinking, you would look at that and you would say, well, my goodness, that tar caused them to smoke. Is that what has happened? No, the tar was not the cause of smoking. The tar was the effect of smoking. And so what you'd have to do, I think, to approve causation is that you'd have to go to the point of conception and do a long study into adulthood or maybe right after birth and do a study into long, a long study into adulthood to determine causation. And that's why in the research, they don't put an awful lot of confidence in this particular argument. Now, it is, however, on some of these bases 
that there are some therapists who take children right before puberty and prescribe hormones to them to delay puberty for several years until they can grow old enough to make the decision about their own gender. The time that usually ends puberty, maybe four or five years later. And then the next step is gender reassignment surgery if that child decides to be a different sex, a different gender. Now, did you hear what I just said? There are 40 clinics across the United States that prescribe hormones to kids to retard puberty without a scientific basis. My question is, shouldn't someone in the field settle this issue before injecting children with hormones that in most cases make them sterile, prescribing puberty suppressants and recommending gender reassignment surgery? Shouldn't we settle the scientific issue first? Listen, the science isn't driving this. Um, number three, the largest study of twin transsexual adults found something very interesting. Now, with twins, identical twins, you would expect that if one identical twin is transsexual and if there is a biological cause for this in one identical twin, what would you expect of the other identical twin? Same thing. That's true only in 20% of the cases. 80% of the time, the other twin is not transsexual. In the 1970s, of course, as I mentioned before, Johns Hopkins terminated its gender reassignment surgery practices. And number five, this is a hard statement, and I think I'm willing to take a stand on it, at least here. Allowing or encouraging children or teens to impersonate the opposite sex by action, surgery, or hormone therapy is harmful. Especially if it makes them sterile. Especially when they can't give consent. Allowing for these treatments is essentially allowing those who are too young to provide consent to undergo therapies that amount to experimentation and may result in sterilization. It is hard for me to tell the difference between these specific procedures conducted on minors and child abuse. I'm having a very hard time telling the difference. A very hard time. I can be corrected if I'm overstating the case, but it takes my breath away, and it, I have to guard myself against getting real angry over that. There's a growing, in fact, online community about this issue among some of the therapists and Gay rights advocates, gay affirming physicians, mental health professionals, and academics. Their webpage is called First Do No Harm, Youth Trans Critical Professionals. And here's what they write. We're concerned about the current trend to quickly diagnose and affirm young people as transgender, often setting them down a path towards medical transition. We feel that unnecessary surgeries and or hormonal treatments, which have not been proven safe in the long term, represent significant risk for young people. Policies that encourage, either directly or indirectly, such medical treatment for young people who may not be able to evaluate the risk and benefits are highly suspect in our opinion. Psychological perspective. Uh, some children endure a time of questioning about who they are. Not all, but some do. So that leads us to number two. Children usually get through this time of confusion and identi identify as their biological sex at a rate of 85 to 90%. 
That's why many of those uh, who counsel such families will say, just wait and see, and they'll get through it for the most part. For the most part, they do. Sometimes there are other things they need to do, and there are other recommendations that counselors will make, but this, this is a primary one. Not the only one, but a primary one. Among adults who undergo gender reassignment surgery, however, and hormone therapy, researchers found higher levels of depression and suicidal thoughts and tendencies. Didn't work out for them. And uh, that's one reason Johns Hopkins ended their gender reassignment surgical practices. Family perspective. Confusion on, and I want to be real careful with this, and I don't want you to run through this real quickly as an explanation. I want to be uh, real careful with that. Uh... To be responsible, I've got to throw this out, but I I want us to be, I want us to handle this and keep it in proportion. Confusion on gender identity may reflect a problem with parenting, may reflect a problem with parenting. It doesn't guarantee it. So if you find a child that is struggling with that, please don't quickly run and blame the parent, okay? But it may reflect poor parenting. Poor parenting, repulsive parenting, or negligent parenting. Now, you can understand this. Let's say you've got a little boy in a family who would prefer to be in the kitchen with his mom than in the deer stand with his dad. He'd rather eat things than shoot things. He'd rather use a knife than a rifle. Okay? And uh, he uh, is aware that he's a lot like his dad. All right? uh, he's a male. His dad's a male. But he really... Is, is intimidated and afraid of his dad uh, for lots of reasons. Dad's not very warm, doesn't have much to do with him, is really disappointed that he doesn't want to be in the deer stand with him. And uh, the little boy is especially afraid of his dad because on Friday nights he gets drunk and beats the tar out of the woman that, uh, for which he feels the most affection. In fact, the mother has actually protected the boy from the violence of the dad and has suffered terribly for him. And so he intensely identifies with his mother and has incredible, intense uh, commitment to her. Can you understand the mind of a little boy if he gets somewhat confused and thinks, that's what a man is, and I don't want to be that? Does that make sense? Okay. I I can imagine that scenario, and I, I can understand that. And so if he doesn't want to be a man and a male on one hand, because of the fear and the rejection and the repulsiveness of this dad, on one hand. And he really has a fond affection and admiration for his mom and gets real tight with her, and they bond together. And if she crosses the line and begins to share things with him that adults should not share with children about her marriage, which has been called emotional incest in some cases, can you understand how he might get confused and prefer to be a girl? Does that make sense? Okay. Well, I can see that being one scenario where poor parenting could create some confusion. I want to caution, though, I'm not saying that all parents who have children that are confused about these issues are guilty of poor parenting. A Baptist Press article uh, about the American uh, College of Pediatricians uh, did say environmental factors like family dynamics and childhood sex abuse are predominant uh, in these cases. I I will say... It is as appropriate to question parents who support young children in their transgendered transition as it is to question parents who mistreat their children. I am aware of support groups 
for teenagers and children who support them and affirm them transitioning genders from male to female and female to male who have children in them as young as eight years old. I have a problem with that. I would go so far as to say it probably should be illegal and someone needs to get in trouble for that. That bothers me. That's not very good parenting. Now, let me, let me real quickly lighten that a little bit by saying there are some motives to this. There are some people who think they're doing children the best they can do with this. Uh, they, they don't have the best of information. Okay? I don't think there are a lot of parents who are trying to hurt their kids over this. Okay? Number two, there are some who are motivated by a distrust in Christian moral standards. They think Christian moral standards are harmful and should be made illegal. About 40% of liberals absolutely hate our existence, would remove our children from our homes, keep us from holding public office and having government jobs because of what we believe. About 40% of liberals, according to George Yancey in his book, Not Enough Lions. He was a civil rights researcher, a black, re, black African-American professor, I forget where, but um, Google his name and look it up at Amazon and you'll find a lot of good works from him. The third reason is there has been a movement, at least since Freud became popular in the early 20th century in America, just to overthrow all moral boundaries. And that every personal decision has got to be made by the individual to be legitimate and that society can't make these kinds of decisions. So those are some motives there. Uh, I don't think for the most part people are out to try to hurt children. Although I think there are some who are just willing to let them be collateral damage. I think they're probably in the minority though, in a small percentage. Cultural perspective. One fears a bit that when this problem appears in children or teens that what is in fact happening is that the errant adult world is once again projecting its views upon, the, upon young undeveloped children and sexualizing them or confusing them about these issues in bizarre ways. Adults have a tendency to do that. Early confusion, early sexualization. Uh, medicine does not occur in a moral vacuum. And it doesn't occur in a pol political vacuum either. It's naive to think that research is never tainted by money and it's never tainted by politics. It's never tainted by people's moral or immoral views. There are, in fact, severe consequences to many who speak up. Kenneth Zucker is one example. He has been long acknowledged as the foremost authority on gender identity issues in children. He has been a lifelong advocate for gay and transgender rights, so he would not be with us on our views on some of these issues. However, much to the consternation of the adult transgender activist, Zucker believes that gender dysphoric pre-pubertal children are best served by helping them align their gender identity with their anatomical sex. In other words, if kids before puberty get confused about these things, you need to help them align their minds with their bodies. This view cost him his 30-year directorship of the Child, Youth, Family, Gender, Identity Clinic at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. This can be a cutthroat thing, and you've got to understand that. Here's some conclusions. Number one, Christians in churches should not be fearful or intimidated about speaking these issues. 
Only the vigorous will impress the world. Wilting, wilting is not worthy of Jesus Christ. And it's not worthy of kids either. Two, Christians in churches should discern genuine pain from self-inflicted and exaggerated pain, usually generated from social media. There are some people that are genuinely suffering. There are some that suffer temporarily because they get nervous about what they read on Facebook or Instagram. We need to discern between the difference. Third, Christians in churches should be aware of the inconsistency in debates over sexual identity and disability. They have said for years that alcoholism and homosexuality and bipolar disorder and depression are biologically determined. Well, why not say that about gender? You can't have it both ways. So there's some inconsistency there. Christians in churches should respond to sincerely confused transgender persons with compassion, patience, and instruction. And I say this because I don't believe, as best I can tell at this point, and the research, the most current research, in fact, that I don't believe this arises from the biology or the genetics of the person. It's imposed or projected from the outside. And so that's why Mark Yarhouse at Regents University will counsel a, a child with this and oftentimes bring relief to them and say, I don't believe you chose this. And they start exploring about how it was projected onto the child or it was imposed upon them. So we uh, should respond to sincerely confused transgender persons with compassion, patience, and instruction. It's not going to help to call them freaks or to communicate that they're unwanted. At Beach Haven, we want them here. The gospel is enough to transform a life. And I want to thank our members who are reaching out to friends like that. We've had members reach out to folks in our community struggling with this who have been told by other churches who are not as robust theologically as we are that they could not come to that church. Well, they can come here. Now, they cannot advocate their views. Uh, they cannot set a bad example for kids in how they dress. They cannot detract attention and worship by their physical appearance. They'll have to get along with everybody, but they are welcomed here. Number five, Christians and churches should insist upon the well-being and safety of children in this debate. We've got to insist uh, upon it. That's why I've been very upset with the president's and the Justice Department's ruling on bathrooms in the United States. That's why I will not take my 11-year-old to a restroom at Target. Won't be going. Number six, some good Christians will. Okay, so don't, I don't use that as a standard of righteousness. But I, I can't, in my conscience, let him go into a restroom by himself at Target. Number six, Christians in churches should exercise caution when speaking about children. If we have a boy who stereotypically is a bit effeminate, let us not use the word sissy to describe him. I want to ask that we erase that word from our vocabulary when talking about kids. I would also suggest that even though it's not a derogatory term, and it can be actually a compliment, we might want to rethink the use of the word tomboy for some girls. Let me tell you why. It's not a bad word. It's not derogatory, like sissy. But what it might do is that it might very well give a foothold 
to aggressive transgender LGBT people later, if the child gets confused, to remark back to them, well, look, of course you ought to change genders. They called you a tomboy when you were a kid. I want us to be careful with that. It might be best not to use that kind of uh, term. I'm not going to police your language if you do. Don't want us using the word sissy for boys, though, or any some such term. Number seven, Christians and churches should expand the cultural expectation of what constitutes a boy and what constitutes a girl. Let me, let me put it this way. If a boy has the anatomy of a boy, he is a boy. No matter his interest, his toys, or his mannerisms. In fact, we should expand our understanding of what a boy is to include toys, interests, and mannerisms that are different from the stereotypical boy. If he prefers the kitchen over the um, deer stand, he's a boy. As much a boy as anybody on the earth. If his dream is to be a fashion designer in New York City, instead of having a reality show where he chases bears for a living. He is still a boy. I, I had a fellow like that in my last youth ministry. His name was Thomas Moore. You didn't know it, but you've probably seen him. He came in one day asking me what he should do with his life. He was about to graduate from high school. He had some choices to make. On one hand, he loved rodeo. And West Texas State University had a degree in rodeo. And he rodeoed on the weekend, rodeoed for fun in the pastor at the house. Uh, so he had that choice. On the other hand, he had the opportunity to become a model in New York City because he was a handsome dude, and he chose modeling. May I say to you, he is as much a boy as anyone else. In fact, he was someone that could pass as a model and did. You probably saw him in some clothing catalogs of uh, major uh, clothing retailers. And uh, on one hand, on the other hand, he liked rodeo. So we've got these two different worlds coming together. And Thomas was still a man. We need to expand our cultural expectations of boys to include that. Same is true with girls. If a girl doesn't want to wear dresses and she would rather wear shorts and high tops and spend most of her time on the basketball court, if anatomically she's a girl, she is a girl. And she doesn't need any changes to prove it. And so what we may need to do is that we might need to expand our cultural expectations of children, of boys and girls, even to the extent where there is significant overlap, and the big exception to that is, boys and girls have got to be heterosexual when they marry. Other than that, a lot of stuff is wide open, and we need to accept that. Number eight, Christians and churches should gently guide people confused by transgender philosophy to dress and use restrooms consistent with their anatomy. In the family, in the church, and culture, and society, there are several reasons for that. At church, you cannot distract attention to yourself from Jesus Christ. So we will insist upon that if transgender persons come. When it comes to the use of the restroom, you'll have to use the restroom that's consistent with your anatomy. That's what we will do. Okay? Um, uh, when it comes to uh, being in a, in a classroom setting and a school setting, uh, it's best for children to dress in such a way that it does not encourage bullying or bring too much attention to themselves. There's no need for that at all. 
attention has got to go to Jesus Christ and not to uh, self. And so there is, um, um, I think there may be some help there. There may be some other things to say, and I'm open to uh, learning more. I've left you with Appendix A, starting on page number 7. This is a statement from the American College of Pediatricians from this month, in fact, entitled Gender Ideology Harms Children, and they have documented it with a number of uh, endnotes. And they have summarized their views on this in eight uh, statements that I think are helpful. I would encourage you also to look for the most recent Johns Hopkins study from two Johns Hopkins professors, uh, Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh, in the New Atlantis Journal, the edition. It's a three-part series, but the New Atlantis Journal, if you look for Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh, it's being reported today in Baptist Press, uh, and you can find, I think, links there to it, okay? Well, we've gone past time, but I do want to take any questions that you uh, may have. I can't promise an answer, but I'll, I'll do my best. And I can't promise that you can't stunt me either. You might be able to do that, so... Uh, uh, which uh, most places aren't, isn't, most subjects not too difficult to do anyway. Any questions? How can you Let me ask you this. Does the boy uh, clearly identify as a male? Oh, yeah. yeah, there may not be any need to. How old is he? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the, I think they run a risk there. Um, in creating a problem where it doesn't exist. And that's about what I would, uh, what I would say. Uh, you, you don't want to run the risk of creating a problem where it doesn't exist. I don't see his interest as being necessarily a threat uh, to him. Uh, most of the chefs I've known through the years have been male. Uh, and some of the most popular fashion designers are male. And, and so, um, I, I, don't, I don't think in many places in the world he'll have any difficulty. I think the, the, the point of sale there would be to um, uh, encourage him not, not to create a problem where it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah it's good. Yeah. Right. I find that Matthew 7, 6 is very helpful. Jesus said, don't give what's holy to dogs or cast your pearls before swine. Uh, dogs don't appreciate holy things. I can give my sweet little puppy at home, Ginger Rain, a Bible, and as lovely as she is, Ginger Rain is not going to appreciate it. She will probably eat it. Uh, Michelle grew up on a 75-acre pig farm, and uh, they, they never took the hogs to church. Never did, because they wouldn't appreciate it. And so we, uh, and then Jesus would say in Matthew uh, 10, 14, you know, shake the dust off your feet. So I'd say it at least once, and if they don't appreciate it, I'd have to move on 
turn them over to God and, uh, and all. But I, I would be real succinct in what the Holy Spirit will do. You might want to start a prayer movement about it, is that he will give power to your words and tell them that um, they're, they're running a risk of creating a problem where it doesn't exist. We need to talk more about that later. Come see me, though, or email me, all right? That'll be good. Are there other questions? Anyone else? Okay, y'all are easy to satisfy. Great. You feel like you're drunk out of fire, fire hydrant? Okay, well, let me pray for you. I love you and appreciate you. Uh, but um, go forward and bless the world, all right? Thank you, Father, for blessing us. You're so kind and so good to us, and we honor and exalt you. And we pray that you will give us the strength uh, to communicate truth to our world. I do want to thank you, Father, for the marvelous researchers and the people that really uh, take their careers and reputations, their funding, and um, their livelihoods, uh, and put them at risk uh, to stand for things that are true. Um, I'm very grateful for that. Lord, I sure do wish that our world was more research-driven in these uh, areas. I wish ultimately it was driven by Christ and his word. And we do pray for a day when we'll see that. We know it's coming when Christ returns, but we sure would like to see it for these friends now that we know. And we pray for all your help. Lord Brandy has mentioned a family tonight that is in great need of your help, and I want to pray. And we want to pray together and, and, and agree in unison here tonight for you to intervene and take care of this family and give them wisdom in parenting. Thank you for their sincere desire for... Uh, their son to um, to uh, to do the right thing in his life. Uh, we we just pray for great wisdom. These issues are difficult. They're touchy. Uh, they're complex. And uh, Lord, we pray that they will not create a problem where it doesn't exist, uh, but they would address real substantive issues, and and be the kind of parents that are wise before Christ. Thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen.